Welcome to Lawyer Up, brought to you from Columbus, Ohio, home of The Ohio State University. I'm here with my law partner, Jack Derora, and I'm John Gonzalez, and we have Dr. Steve Rissing with us. Uh, Dr. Rissing is a professor emeritus in the Department of Evolution, Ecology, and Organismal Biology at The Ohio State University. Um, Jack and I were talking about my son, who recently graduated from The Ohio State University in Environmental Science, and thought that our listeners would enjoy talking about issues such as global warming and how uh, science is taught. So welcome, Dr. Uh, Rissing. Thanks, John, and thanks, Jack. Steve, um, we've seen throughout the summer what seems to be a record number of hurricanes and terrible forest fires on the West Coast. Is there a relationship between claims of climate change and these phenomena? If so, how do you prove the connection? That's a really good question, and a lot of people are asking themselves uh, questions like that right now. There is a relationship. Uh, we understand it very, very clearly. Uh, it's the relationship between the ability of air uh, to hold water moisture, and that occurs as a function of the temperature of the air, as I think most people have experienced one way or the other. You feel really uncomfortable during hot, humid days in the summer, but there aren't bitter, cold, humid days that feel the same uh, in the winter. Uh, two physicists worked out that relationship back in 1850. What they were able to demonstrate was that as the temperature of air goes up each degree centigrade, the ability of that air to hold moisture increases by 7%. So it's, a, it's an exponential, it's a compounding interest thing that as temperature goes up, and we know that the global temperature has gone up about 1.2 degrees centigrade uh, since we really started burning fossil fuels in the beginning of the industrial revolution. As the temperature of the air goes up, its ability to hold moisture, or if you will, its ability to dry things out, uh, increases exponentially. And so it's warmer, uh, therefore things like forests uh, are drier and they're more prone to burning. That moisture goes somewhere, it's in the air, uh, and people have described um, warm air and the moisture in that air as the fuel that drives hurricanes. And so uh, with warmer air, especially over the oceans, you've got more moisture, it's driving those hurricanes uh, and yeah, uh, this, is, this is directly linked. It's really an application of the laws of thermodynamics. So it's not really a question to, um, of proving, I, you know, we accept the very basics of thermodynamics as, as the foundation of just about all the science that we do. I'm interested, you've mentioned this 1.5 degree temperature change. We hear that a lot. That's a confusing term because when I hear about temperature change, I'm thinking temperature change in relation to what? So without getting too lost or too deep into the weeds here, what's that a reflection of? Uh, that's a good question. And it's in relation to the global mean at 
either the start of the Industrial Revolution, and then we get to have a long discussion of when was that, and it depends upon the country. The records that are normally used for that go back to 1880. And so the mean, uh, usually up into around the late 1800s. And so it's going up since really the start of burning fossil fuels. You mentioned you had an interest in uh, education. Mm -hmm. Well, I can tell you when I was in grade school, we didn't talk about climate change. I don't think the two words had been invented. So what's going on now? Well, Starting with the George W. Bush administration, we had the No Child Left Behind Act. And everybody knows that that's when a focus started to be made on testing. Well, to have testing, you have to have standards. And so many states back in the 1990s and early 2000s developed their science standards for the first time. This is a document that states to all what we expect students to learn in each grade between kindergarten and graduation from high school. And so each state went through uh, the exercise of doing that, a consortium of states, two of the original founders were Ohio and Michigan, uh, decided it would make more sense if we band together as states and come up with a document that hopefully all the states could adopt. Um, this was also done in other academic areas. It came to be known as the Common Core in English and in mathematics. And there was a lot of pushback on that. And so there was never a Common Core in science. Instead, they were called the Next Generation Science Standards. Uh, of those were eventually developed and released. Uh, work on that started about 17 years ago and the first review draft of those science standards came out about 10 years ago. Um, 24 states, let's see, 20 states um, adopted the NGSS as they're known, 24 states uh, went ahead and wrote their own based upon the foundational document that the NGSS were based on. And uh, six states didn't even try to look at that founding document and went off on their own. And so all states now have uh, some form of science standards. I was recently involved in a study that compared the science standards uh, with respect to climate change education uh, in all of the states. And um, it's really amazing. I can't answer your question until you tell me what state we want to talk about. Uh, and so as an example, I like to point out to people, one of the expectations, one of the performance expectations of students in middle school around fifth or sixth grade, is that they should be able to, and this is a quote from them, ask questions to clarify evidence of the factors that have caused the rise in global temperatures over the past century. Okay. Um, 
of the 20 states that adopted the standards, they, they're okay. Six states in theirs adopted every one of the standard statements for middle school, except this one. And they changed the word rise in global temperature to a change uh, in global temperature. Six more states replaced rise to the word change, and they dropped the reference to over the past century. Uh, five states just kind of said, yeah, humans can do things to the climate and didn't talk about a time frame. Three states questioned the impact and two states, I can't even tell you, they just didn't have anything. And so it's a real hodgepodge what's going on now in grade school and high school, uh, which I think is really unfortunate. Your child might get great education in some states. If you get, you know, um, relocated by your employer, you may enter a whole different universe of education. It's really quite unfortunate. Steve, when you talk about these educational standards, then uh, being all across the board, what other factor would there be other than burning fossil fuels that could account for the rise in temperatures? That's a really good question. And one of the surprising, surprising uh, entries there is uh, the agricultural uh, sector in that um, through things like um, synthetic fertilizers, uh, through the processing of animals, especially cows. Uh, there's the release of a large number of greenhouse gases, especially methane. Mm -hmm. To me, that still sounds like that's man-made then. That's not a natural um, uh, occurrence. Is there something that, let's say, uh, climate deniers uh, are going to point to that says this really has nothing to do with human beings, it has to do with something that we really have little control over? Yes, they certainly like to say that. Uh, we've, got, we've got really good uh, data, however, that, um, the, that we've seen an increase in greenhouse gas concentration uh, in uh, the atmosphere since the start of the Industrial Revolution, there's a variety of different uh, measurements and ways to measure uh, that uh, the level of carbon dioxide and the level of methane in the atmosphere going back actually centuries. Uh, I have to plug Ohio State. It's famous for the work of uh, Lonnie Thompson and Alan Mosley Thompson. Uh, and all their work on coring glaciers, uh, you're able to, they are able uh, to extract gases out of ice of known age and get very good readings. And so we're able to take a look and see how much we've risen, the carbon dioxide and methane in the environment has risen uh, and it, it, it's up about, 150 parts per million for carbon dioxide. It's higher now than it's been in the last, I think, um, 20 centuries. It's, it's just really scary. 
One of the things that lawyers do, and Jack and I do this often, is we go to court to prove something such as burning fossil fuels is a problem and is is causing the, the, the mean temperature to rise. But the other side also can find experts for the uh, opposing position. And I think that you had uh, sent me something that said that there's maybe two or 3% of the scientific community that does not believe that fossil fuel is, is causing our problems. And I guess I'm trying to get at from a scientific standpoint, do, do they have some basis for that opinion or is it more of just a feeling that, uh, that they get, which again, Jack and I see that often in experts um, in, in lawsuits that really don't have a very good scientific opinion. The, um, the figure that I sent you and that I you know, can supply a reference for is 97%, but that's of climate scientists, okay? Uh, and exactly who the other 2%, I think it's closer to 1% now, is I'm not sure. Uh, there's been a series of revelations that some of the famous, we used to call them skeptics, uh, I prefer the term denier now, in fact, received funding from the fossil fuel industry, something I suspect you must see as well in your line of work. Uh, and so the people that are saying, uh, no, it's not, it's not happening or it's not that bad um, are really outside of the field of climate science. And one thing that I think is really interesting, um, we have uh, an institute I've enjoyed uh, working with at Ohio State, the Risk Institute. And they're located in the Fisher College of Business uh, and do a lot of work with the insurance industry. And so uh, they have periodic conferences uh, that uh, I attended one a year or two ago. And it was a look at climate predictions for the insurance industry. Uh, and I've, I've attended a number of these, so I know some of the people. And in question and answer, uh, I, I raised my hand, stood up and said, you know, I want to know something, guys. Everybody in this audience is from the insurance industry. I'm an evolutionary biologist, okay? And in evolution and in trying to teach climate science, I had a lot of people telling me, I don't believe it. I'm not familiar with anybody in the insurance industry where people say they don't believe in this. How do you guys get away with this? Um, and it certainly brought laughter. Uh, but these are the guys that have to deal with this in terms of multi-billion dollar events that are going on. So if you really want to talk to somebody about what they believe uh, and denial, go talk to the insurance industry. They're paying out so many claims on billion dollar events that have occurred, forest fires, uh, hurricanes, and things like that. Uh, a lot of insurance companies have simply got up and moved out and won't write policies for hurricane prone areas. You don't hear anybody talking about, well, maybe it's not true in the insurance industry. It, it's funny you say that to me because 
when an industry that's that powerful is affected monetarily by an issue, it gets involved. I also read something that the military is also very interested in climate change because of the security uh, risks that it, um, it might uh, present. Do you have any insight into that? Do you, have you been to any conferences that discuss the military's role? The military is concerned uh, at, at two levels. Uh, one is, of course, what you just said. Um, they have several reports. Out. They, they call it a, a force multiplier. And that when you see people migrating and, and streaming out of places like Somalia uh, and elsewhere, some of the places where those people are coming from are facing some of the worst droughts they've ever had. And so the kind of social disruption that can lead to military conflict can lead to the migration wave that you see has been going on and will continue to go on in Europe. Often that's driven by um, climate change induced failures elsewhere in the system. There's a really good report that came out after um, the uh, Middle Eastern Spring, uh, and uh, it raised the issue that a lot of the social strife that led to uh, the rioting that went on in the Middle East in 2011 was preceded by, as one report put it, biblical level um, droughts and failure of crops driving people into the cities where they got very poor social service and eventually started rioting. The second place that the military is concerned is their own infrastructure. Uh, the naval base in Norfolk uh, is located in a part of the coast that's experiencing uh, tremendous sea level rise but also in that particular section of the coast, it's sinking for a variety of reasons. And so you've got one of the largest naval bases in the world that might get flooded. They have similar problems, uh, as I understand, on the coast of Alaska and elsewhere. But if you think about it, a number of military installations, certainly naval ones, are going to be frontline in the area of sea level rise. And so just in terms of defending their own infrastructure, uh, yeah, they're very concerned about it. Let's circle back to something that you were talking to John and me about before we started to record. And you said the best way to bring the message home is to relate it to people in their lives. So we've talked about hurricanes and forest fires, neither of which we have in Ohio. So what's climate change mean for your average Joe in the Buckeye State? That's a really good question. And the answer goes back to that relationship between air temperature and the ability of air to hold moisture. And so for much of the Midwest, uh, what we already see going on and uh, are predicted to see more is the strange combination of droughts because of increasing heat and also tremendous deluges 
and flooding as we've seen in the last couple of years along the Mississippi and along the Missouri. The other thing that happens is that uh, records for Ohio suggest that we've had it relatively uh, mild, that the uh, annual mean temperature in Ohio over the last century has only gone up about 1.2 degrees Fahrenheit. We're destined to probably get more. But there's a funny effect that that has on the growth of crops. They're able to grow faster. Um, the, it takes less time to go from uh, when seeds germinate to the production of a crop. <clears throat> Those crops doing that don't have the seed that they're eventually making. We call it corn and soybeans. Uh, do not have enough developmental time. And so they mature early and they're somewhat incomplete. And so yields drop, okay? And so we're already seeing an effect of temperature. Uh, and as it gets warmer, we're gonna see more of that effect. Uh, and <clears throat> in 2019, the last year for when data was available, Corn and soybeans in Ohio uh, contributed $3.8 billion uh, to our economy. And while I usually have a couple students in my classes at OSU that are still involved in active farming, um, many of my students aren't able to really appreciate that. I'm not sure they recognize soybeans, um, I mean, the plant. Uh, but I just remind them that, you know, the farmers pay taxes on this income and taxes are what's burning those lights above us right now. Uh, and uh, so there's a number of effects. Uh, one other perspective on it is that the uh, British journal, The Lancet, now has an annual review of the literature on climate change and health. And uh, let me see, I took a few notes on this. Um, the effect on people over the age of 65 now getting exposed to uh, more uh, heat waves is increasing mortality of people that are over 65 uh, from heat waves. And so there's a number of effects. It's not as dramatic as a hurricane, uh, unless of course the hurricane comes through and hits Ohio, which happens on occasion. Uh, but between agricultural production, um, general effects of increasing temperature on health, uh, there are already effects. I think it's important to say this isn't now predicted. More and more people are recognizing these things are happening. And yeah, if we continue to release uh, greenhouse gases uh, at the rate that we have been or anywhere near that rate, the temperatures are going to continue to go up and we'll see more of this. Following that thought process, um, we always hear about what the um, rising temperature is going to do to the oceans. What about the Great Lakes? Um, you know, obviously a fresh water supply, uh, fishing, commerce. 
what effect, if you know, uh, will global warming have on something like Lake Erie, um, where, you know, a lot of Ohioans, a lot of our listeners are, are able to enjoy that, uh, that uh, wonderful natural resource? Of course. <clears throat> this com- combination of drought and deluges, you know, tremendous rainstorms in the middle of summer, translates directly into a flushing effect off of farm fields into eventually rivers and in our part of the country into the Great Lakes. And so uh, depending upon farming practices, there's an increased probability and people that have studied this see more and more fertilizer making it into the Great Lakes. Um, if a farmer puts down especially synthetic fertilizer and the next day they get a three-inch thunderstorm, that fertilizer is not staying in the field. And we already know what those effects are going to be. Toledo in August 2011 had an algal bloom that was so massive that it made it into the intake of the Toledo water system, such that uh, cyanobacteria toxins were in the Toledo water system, and they had to use bottled water for at least a week or two, if I remember correctly. And so we've already seen those effects. So when we think about um, um, how to... uh what we can do to rectify the situation. The current administration removed the United States from the Paris Climate Accord. I'm assuming just from talking to you that you think that was a mistake. What do you see happening with the next administration and what can that type of um, accord do for the United States? Well, the accord, as I understand it, really resulted because the Obama administration uh, went to China and talked with China and basically told China that this is serious enough that both of our countries, both of our economies need to uh, take it seriously. And once the United States and China agreed to do something about it, everybody else fell in line. Uh, and so the thing that, I mean, the effect that had on the rest of the world was, well, if the U.S. and China are taking it seriously, we'll take it seriously. Um, it's a tremendous loss of a leadership position for us to have withdrawn from it. And I think we'll see many benefits uh, by rejoining, although I'm already reading just in the, in the newspapers, people are asking, well, what happens the next time there's an administration change? And I don't know the answer to that question. Let's talk about resistance. Certainly there are, there is some certain number, fairly significant number of people who we would call climate change deniers. My own sense without the benefit of any empirical evidence is that these are people who subconsciously are just really worried about the economic effect and that blinds them or precludes them from seeing the science that's right in front of them. So how do we get the message out in a way that allows us 
to not only talk about climate change, but say, look, folks, I understand the economy's an issue. Let's focus on how we do both. I don't hear enough of that, or am I missing something? I think you're right. Uh, I know that uh, given what I've been reading coming out of Washington is that the incoming administration doesn't see this as a trade-off between the environment and the economy. Uh, <clears throat> I think that there's a lot more information that is coming out on the role of the fossil fuel industry in maintaining the status quo in government. And I think that it's responsible for, for some of the opinion drivers that you see. Uh, and I think actually if you, there's the Yale program on climate change information, I think is their, their full name. And they're showing a steady increase in the number of Americans that are recognizing that the climate is an issue. Uh, and uh, so I see a lot of hope in that. My answer for you personally, in terms of what do we do, uh, I've always tried to do uh, academic outreach. Uh, and so two colleagues of mine and I, gee, six years ago, proposed to the university to offer a novel interdisciplinary uh, course, a general education course uh, on climate change. And so there's an earth scientist, there's an environmental historian, OSU has a very good program in environmental uh, history within the history department. And then I was the biologist in this. Um, I was involved in teaching that class for the first four years and uh, as you might be familiar in terms of uh, college courses, we closed it out in pre-registration every year. And that's with 160 students in it. Uh, I did surveys of our incoming students because I wanted to be able to say, look, we changed the minds of all of these students. They came in 50, 60%, kind of the national percent of, percent of understanding or quote, accepting climate change, I failed miserably because the students we were getting just in pre-registration, 96% of them already were knowledgeable of climate change and concerned about it. What we were able to do was provide them with a lot more insights into what's going on and the history of all of that. I derive a lot of hope out of that. Okay, we didn't need to change minds. We needed to deepen the understanding. And we were able to do that. That course is going on. It's getting adopted now at other um, institutions. Like I said, it's a general education course. And so it's one of the courses John, your son was able to use um, to satisfy their distribution requirements in college. Uh, and so I'm actually really proud of the course. I, I think that we identified a need and an interest in the students. And uh, I don't know how they did this last year. I'm not involved in the most recent offering the course. I have every reason to think that it closed out. When we uh, think about how the um, economics drive policy, um, I think about, uh, and you may have written about this in one of your articles to the dispatch, how the new player is the renewable energy uh, and versus the old player, fossil fuels. 
Can you talk a little bit about um, what the concerns are there? And then I think you had maybe had the uh, coined the uh, term economic dislocation and how that could benefit um, uh, this issue on global warming. Well, the renewable energy uh, has, uh, especially solar and wind, has a tremendously different economic driver than fossil fuels. Renewable energy depends upon technology. And as everybody knows with computer chips, that as you develop a technology, uh, it becomes increasingly more efficient and less expensive, okay? Uh, So if you've got a personal computer uh, and you're now buying your, what is it, third, fourth, fifth, sixth one, I don't know about you guys, but I usually spend about the same amount of money every time, but the machine I get is almost an order of magnitude more powerful uh, than the the one I'm replacing, okay? So that driver, that effect, Uh, goes on in the technology for both solar and wind. And then in fossil fuels, the more you extract, the harder it is to get the rest. Okay, so remember a decade or two ago, we talked about peak oil and people are still somewhat concerned about that. As you consume your fuel, it gets harder and harder to get more fuel and it can become more expensive. In renewable energy, that's not the case. The energy, the the power source for these is free, okay? So consuming sunlight doesn't do anything to the availability of sunlight in the future. And so the cost of generating renewable energy has just come screaming down. Uh, I don't have the, the data in front of me, but just about anywhere, certainly in the United States, if anybody's talking about building a new power plant, nobody is building coal anymore. And there is some natural gas, but even natural gas now is usually more expensive for generating electricity than wind or solar. And so we've seen this in history many, many times that a new technology displaces an old one and whole industries shift. Okay, so Henry Ford put a whole lot of buggy wheel manufacturers in every town out of work. Okay, the automated looms in England led to the famous interaction with the Luddites who uh, did not want to adopt that new technology. And so it's a classic economic textbook example of revolution or change in technology, pretty much uh, doing away with the old technology in the old industry. So what's really at risk for Americans if we don't take enough action? What's really at risk? Um, The predictions um, based on where we've gone so far uh, is that you're going to see a lot hotter environment, even here in Ohio. 
you'll see an increase in the odd pair of droughts and floods. Uh, you'll see an increase in sea level rise, which we're already measuring. Uh, and you're going to see a lot of instability internationally. You're already seeing a lot of instability internationally with large numbers of people uh, leaving areas where there's agricultural failure. We're simply going to see more of that, unfortunately, unless we do something about it. That leads me to a, a question there, Steve. Um, are we at the point of no return? And personally, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future? Well, I feel like I have to be optimistic. I, and certainly as, as someone who has taught uh, college students in the past, the what you're gonna hear about, I think out of the uh, Biden-Harris administration is that it's generally accepted by most people, that, by climatologists, by people that work the models, that we're confronting a point of no return at about an increase of global mean temperature of 1.5 degrees centigrade. There's a report out from, I think it's the World Meteorological Organization earlier this month. We're at about 1.2 degrees centigrade globally. And so what that means is we have to have a massive cut in the amount of greenhouse gases that we emit by about 2030. And the Biden-Harris administration is talking along those lines. Uh, and so I would expect that they're going to make an effort and it's going to be really interesting to see what happens with the rest of government on whether or not they can do that. Right now, I have a lot of hope. Steve, that's good to hear. Your life work has certainly been so, so important. And um, I'm happy that we were able to, uh, so to speak, throw some cold water on the uh, climate uh, deniers here today. Um, I'd encourage our listeners, too, to support better standards uh, for uh, teaching science in grade school. That can only help in, in the future so that we can um, all be optimistic. But uh, again, thank you so much for your time and your expertise in explaining this uh, to us and our listeners. Great. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. Steve, I want to thank you too. And for our listeners, you can find us by going to our website, which is Lawyer Up Columbus. You can also find us by going to your favorite podcast app on your phone. Uh, next year, that is early January, we will have with us Fred Giddis, one of the uh, leading civil rights lawyers in Columbus. Until then, have a joyous holiday season and remember to lawyer up. So long. <laughs>